And we're live. We're recording. Um, welcome, everyone, to this week's Saturday collaboration experience, where Troy um, led the pack on on what's happening. Uh, I got my brother here. Hello. And uh, my brother played some games this year, and they are going to describe the games to me in a reviewer style and then I, I can interview them ask additional questions about the game and then to ensure fairness of review scores I will be the one giving the uh, game scores occasionally I have played these games but nearly all of these games I have not played so um, that's the format and uh, let's begin we have a list in front of us and the first game on the list is A Short Hike. William, do you want to talk about A Short Hike? Yeah, this is one that uh, that he has played. It's uh, um, a game where you play as a bird, like that's uh, like a anthropomorphic bird person, and like a BoJack Horseman, uh, like like a BoJack Horseman style bird, and you're like a teen girl. And you are on a, like, weekend vacation, I think, to your aunt's house. And you're on this little island just off the coast. And you don't have any cell phone reception. And your aunt asks you if you've ever taken a hike up to the peak. And you say no. And she's like, today would be a great day to do that. And you would get cell reception. So then you have to climb to the top. And there's... It's just a little tiny, like... It feels like a good little 3D platformer, like um, a slightly more intuitive, like Mario 64 style uh, thing, I would say. Like, it's a more forgiving as well. There's a lot of movement mechanics, like you can do a nice little uh, soaring glide, you can um, climb up walls, and you can build up your stamina as you interact with characters, you'll unlock different things, you can... Uh, dig and there's like the little Animal Crossing starfish symbols on the ground where you have to dig to get coins. Okay. There's hidden treasure chests. You grab like seashells. So it's like a collectathon as well as being an exploration game. And okay. you have to find the different paths and there's trail markers and people will tell you different like side goals and things. So there's all sorts. It's a lot of fun. Tons of fun. All right. And uh you're going on the hike because you want cell reception? Yeah, to talk to your mom because you miss your mom. Okay. It's very wholesome. It is. That sounds wholesome. And along the way, there's somebody who's trying to... I don't... I think he was trying to pay... I don't remember if he was trying to pay to go to college or something, but he, like, he buys up all the golden feathers, which are the stamina... And then he, like, overcharges you, but your character's not mad because you want to help him out because uh, you hear his sad story. And there's just stuff, like, like everything has little stuff like that. And um, Okay. Yeah. And the game has a lot of good music. And, oh, there's this great feature where you can decide your own graphical fidelity. And it goes from, like, sharp and fine to... Uh, my favorite setting, which for the pixels is big and crunchy, and okay. so I always play on big and crunchy, and it looks like a 64 game. Okay, so it's like a, like a filter over sort of a theoretical true full. 
Yeah, it just shows version. the resolution. And if you do big and uh, crunchy, you can make sure that uh, it'll never lag. But also, I just like how it looks, honestly. Um, okay. And... Yeah, so there's some really peaceful moments when you soar. It'll play, like, dynamic music if you're going for long enough and flying far enough away from the uh, sort okay. of mountainside. Now, we've heard a lot of good things about this game. Um, are there any downsides to this game that we haven't mentioned yet? I, I know that a lot of people do find some of the platforming in it um, hard, but uh, if you're, like, experienced with Nintendo games... Uh, that shouldn't be a problem, but but I have seen that as uh, a little bit of a negative. Um, people having trouble sort of winning at it. But it is also, if you don't like short games, it's only like one level, basically. Like, I sat down and I played the entire game in, I think, under two hours. And I, like, really, like, was going around trying to find everything. And I don't think I found 100% of everything, but I found lots and lots of things. So yeah. I think that when I played, I played between two and three hours as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I, I thought it was a very solid, polished game. Because it is so short, then that, yeah, it all worked. Okay. Um, well, I think it's time to get to the rating. Do you have anything more to say about this game, or should we go to the rating? Uh, well, I think at this point it's it's um, your rating. Okay. Um, on on the Friendly Fire podcast, Adam Pranica makes up a custom rating system for each movie that they watch. It's always uh, something out of five. And in this key, in this case, I think we're going to go with uh, coins. Uh, I happen to know that you get a lot of coins in this game. Um, they come out of treasure chests. They come out of the ground. So we're going to give this game uh, five coins out of five. Oh. Because, uh, and I will admit that we're not necessarily being fully uh, neutral on that score because I've also played this game uh, and I know how great it is, but you had everything good to say about it and nothing bad to say about it. So uh, that's a short hike for you folks. Yep. Uh, do do we want to go strictly in the order that this list shuffled or do you, you want to you do all the You can jump around. Games? It was just a total shuffle. Um, yeah. I wasn't sure if we wanted to intersperse the video games. I thought it might be good. Like, I thought it kind of actually was a good spread. Okay. Well, I mean, we can actually get back. I'm sure we could just hit Control Z and. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. I, I mean, after the shuffle. Oh. We, uh, Z again. So the next one is Betrayal at House on the Hill Legacy. Okay. So this is the first legacy game I'll talk about out of three. This um, is a board game. This is a board game. Uh, most of these on here are board games, and we play them on Tabletop Simulator, which um, is a, on. we play on Steam. You can uh, use a PC or uh, Mac to run a virtual um, game table, and you can pick up the pieces, move them around really well. It's all very intuitive. Um, so I'll just be talking about these like they're normal board games. Right, yeah. I've I've also played via Tabletop Simulator before. Not all these games, um, but just a few games. And they do play so close to the real thing that you could basically consider it the genuine experience. And this particular set, Greg had the uh, images for, and he actually made the uh, set himself, as far as I understand, oh. within Tabletop Simulator. Oh, so, my word. Okay. So this was kind of a custom set. Um, and I, I know they'll have a one later, but this is a pretty new game. Okay. Um, so uh, 
Uh, a legacy game is a board game that changes the board permanently each time you play it, and you go through predetermined scenarios at least to a certain extent, and you your decisions during them will permanently alter the board, and then after you are done with all the scenarios, you're able to play that board game as its regular form. Um, most of the time, and in, in this case, yes. Um, so, Betrayal at House on the Hill is a horror game where you move around a haunted house, and you begin without being able to know where anything is, and you draw through a stack of tiles that can go to specific areas of the house, such as the ground floor, second floor, and the basement. And then in this particular legacy game, also the outside area. Oh. And the outside actually expands uh, your options by quite a bit. It's, I thought it was a really good extra area. I didn't okay. think the second uh, or the third floor was a good addition when they had the Widow's Walk um, expansion. But I think that this uh, legacy game had a better idea with the outside so, uh, I've played non-Legacy Betrayal at House on the Hill, and I have played the Widow's Walk thing. It seemed like it was just normal rooms. What does the outside do different compared to the Widow's Walk, would you say? So, most of the outside rooms, except for a few of the, like, stables and work rooms, um, which can also be ground floor, most of them are unique rooms. Like, there's, uh, like, a cornfield, a hanging tree, there's, like, the creek which we had all these really intense fights at the creek so that it was full of ghosts because every time a player dies in a scenario, um, then a ghost is left behind permanently on the board and it makes a tile really dangerous. So we'd go to the creek for the special effect where you could like drink from it and possibly strengthen yourself. Okay. You'd increase your speed stat. Um, and... You'd basically be gambling to try and do that while you're all sort of stabbing each other and so forth. So it's this very violent, weird, like, compulsion from all the characters. Because imagine, okay. like, all the characters are losing their minds all the time. Right, right. And honestly, that just, that sounds like Riverdale or, like, some other CW show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it actually is like a CW show because I guess in those shows they actually do kill each other. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um... Yeah, so this is like a silly CW thing, except it starts out in the Revolutionary War times, and there's like an ancient Viking ghost, kind of, and I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but it's a lot of fun, there are tons of scenarios, um, I was able to win uh, 12 of the 13 uh, scenarios, there can be multiple winners, and I oftentimes had partners, but uh, the only time I lost was when uh, one of our other game mates misinterpreted his rule book because the um, the betrayer who is revealed halfway through a scenario uh, has a different rule book. You know, yeah. I'm sort of doing this backward. I should explain how the game is played. Well, yeah, I mean, I can... Uh, the the As these t room tiles, every time you step off the edge of the map, you draw a room tile and place it down, and then each room tile... Um, has various exits that you, you know, you hook them onto the existing room tiles according to their exits and stuff. And you have a symbol on the tile that shows whether it's um, just a random event, like a, like a chance card of Monopoly, um, or it's an item that you will keep 
or it's a thing called an omen, which you, which often works like an item that you keep. Um, and when it's an omen, then you roll some dice based on if you roll a number lower than the number of omens equal to or lower than the number of omens that have already been drawn, then the haunting starts. And based on the omen that was drawn and the room that it was drawn in, because more than one room, like say, you know, the fireplace and the library can both have an omen card, say, and if you draw the candlestick in the library, then it's a certain scenario. Um, so there's a big book that has 50 or more scenarios. I don't know how many are in the legacy version, but the base game has like 50 of them. The way that the legacy game works while you're playing through the campaign is that there is a separate card deck that you draw through and it tells you at the top of a card like when to draw this card. And so okay. like at the top of the first game, say, you draw all all these new item cards and, and so forth because each game takes place about 30 to 40 years apart for the most part, going forward okay. in history uh, until you reach the modern era. And so you're going, uh, there's like new technology, there's new rooms that get added onto the house, oh, okay. and like secret tunnels get put in at different points. Okay. Um, it's all very convoluted, but like in a fun way. Right, um, right. I mean, I imagine most of the legacy games are, you're, they're assuming that you've played the exact same game several times, so they're yes. able to build up that convolution. Yeah, th they want you, I think, for the most part, to come in with the knowledge of the, the base board game. But this has a lot of changes that I think are like distinctly better than the base set. Um, uh, one of which is that instead of ending your movement when you attack, you can attack at any point in your uh, turn. Right. And you can take any, like, uh, single word command once during your, like, turn. So there are a lot of drink actions, like the Chalice of Insanity, for instance. Right. Or the Creek. Um, and okay. Then there's, like, potions and whatever. But there's also a lot of attack options. Uh, but they all use specific keywords so that there's, like, a balance around only being able to use one of those keywords per turn. Okay. And so, um... But but just you could, oh. just to jump back to the explanation for a second. Yes. Because these uh, these omens and the hauntings are random, and the scenario selected is random. Uh, generally, one of the players will turn out to be a traitor. But even the person who is the traitor doesn't know that they're going to be the traitor because of the random rolls. Which um, I've played a few other like secret traitor games. Uh, generally, the traitor knows who they are from the very start. And I think it's a little more interesting when you don't know who the traitor is at the start and it's revealed partway through. I like that better. I agree because you're you're all working together on a really shaky alliance before the um, uh, turnover, uh, before the haunt, because before the haunt, you're all sort of assuming there is essentially in a four-person group with even a single betrayer there's a half-half chance I'm not on your team because either I am the betrayer or you are the betrayer. And those are two out of the four, like, options. Yeah. Okay. So um, you, you don't want to help people a lot beforehand, although there are um, more scenarios in this version that have full, like, everyone's on the same team style okay. haunts, which is fun. But there's a lot more um, items also. In the okay, room. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, I think 
Do we have any more that we want to say about this? We've gone about on about this. Uh, game yes, for quite yes. A while. I'm I'm sorry. Uh, no, no, no. This is good. This is good. I like it. Um, I don't I don't know that there's anything specific. I had like a lot of really really awesome characters. Like uh, like I would play the same character over again if they didn't die often, and uh, so you can win even if you die a lot of times. Right. Um, but uh. My first character just like slaughtered all of the other people, and they kept like coming back to to get her. And three times in a row, once as a teen, then in her forties, and then in her eighties, she just like fought like hell. Good. And like the joke was that she like oh she killed three Baratheons because like of course one of the people named their their dang house Baratheon because yeah. you name all your houses things. Well, mine okay. was the Bergsons. Um, okay, good, good. Greg was the McGruffins. And, <laughs> McGruffins. And, of course, uh, Bryant was the Kenobis. Because the Kenobis. Bryant is obsessed with Obi-Wan Kenobi. Ah, uh, okay, okay. But, um... Uh, but, so, um... Yes, I, I was... The joke was that my character had murdered some Baratheons on the side between the different haunts. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I think it's... I think it's very clear... That on a scale of bloody screams, <laughs> this is five bloody screams out of five. I think there's yes. no no other way we could rate this game. Um, uh, let's see. Next game on the list is another legacy game. This is Pandemic Legacy Season 1. There's more than one season? Yes, and they're distinct gameplay types. So, okay. Um... Now, so I've played Standard Pandemic. It might have been a bit of a bad random roll or something, but when we played Standard Pandemic, it was very, very easy. Um, well, uh, it's likely that you weren't playing with all the Epidemic cards in there, which is the difficulty adjuster for the way the Standard game works most of the time. Okay. Because it essentially determines how many turns go by each time before the deck resets. And the deck resetting often is bad for the play. Anyway, so there are different difficulty levels, etc. Okay. Um, but Pandemic Legacy Season 1 is actually, like, pretty brutal on the players. I, I would say sometimes the board can be really unaccommodating. We Both of the times I've played Season 1, we got the top, uh, uh, like, win points. Like the equivalent of at the end of Luigi's Mansion, getting the best mansion. Yeah. Because um, there's all these different things that give you win points. But right, right, right. It's basically like standard pandemic um, where you clean up cubes in different places. But there are twists throughout the whole thing. I really don't want to spoil any of them. This is uh, another one where, like, part of the game is a surprise. The fact that this is a cooperative team game against a board where the scenario is a big part of it. Okay. Um, I don't want to talk too much about this one. There are some flaws, I think, with it, but overall, I think it's a pretty good, a pretty good game. I think it's just overshadowed a lot because when I get to season two at the end of this list, I'll, I'll talk about that. And it's, it's just a much more interesting variety of the game. I think, um, Okay. Well, <clears throat> I mean, what, uh, is it, 
Are there are there general rule changes or like just specific scenarios compared to standard pandemic? So there are general rule changes and big twists on the rules that happen very quickly. Um, uh, we were taken by uh, in huge surprise right near the end of our first game where uh, there was kind of a big turnaround just by happenstance and we kind of got smashed in our first game we got but when you do poorly you get more funding and when you do well you get less funding okay. um so we got more funding from that first loss and then you get a second attempt uh, for each loss at a month and there are 12 months in the year so there's 12 games to the overall thing and uh, so each time you fail once, you get yeah that second shot. So there's up to twenty four so games. You, you play like January, mm-hmm. and then if you lose January, you can try to play January again, and it still parts counts as the same continuity. Yes, but if you fail okay. January a second time, you move on to February anyway. Okay. Okay. Um, and you get bonuses like you get certain perks for doing like uh, win January on the first time, but you also get the the funding perk for like. Uh, if you were to lose, to try and, like, bring you back up. So there's a lot of rubber banding built in, but there's okay. still, like, incentive to, like, mix things. Like, there's incentive to win because you will get different rewards. Okay. But, yeah. So so it's got that going on, but there are times when it, it can feel a little, like, ugh, overly brutal. Um, okay, well, I've, I've heard you... I, re- I actually do remember hearing you play a lot of these Pandemic Legacy games. Yeah, a couple a couple years ago when we did play the physical edition um, out on the table, I, you may have remembered like how tense it would be when we're all like trying to figure out like for the life of us how to yeah. get out of some bad scenario. Yeah, and I I like that. I mean, fundamentally, Pandemic is when it's a fully co-op game and the scenario itself is what's beating you down, then that's, uh, I think, better than when the players are fighting the other players. Oh, yeah, because we're all, we're all <laughs> fighting as hard as we can uh, and we're working together to try and, like, win this stupid thing. And, like, the actual what you're doing is... Uh, it, it's, like, anti-risk. You're, you're taking disease off of the board and it's a risk map. Right. <laughs> Okay, well, you had a lot of good things to say about it, and you had some uh, trepidation about parts of it. I'm going to give this one uh, four chemical vials out of five. That seems fair. And uh, there's it says Nuzlocke cage matches. I don't... What tell, What is Nuzlocke cage matches? <laughs> Nuzlocke cage matches are what we were doing earlier in the year where... where we were doing three people would each play a version of a Pokemon generation, and we just did uh, Kanto, then um, uh, Johto, then uh, Hoenn. So it was just Gen 1, Gen 2, Gen 3, original versions, except like we would randomly select who got which of the three versions and who got which of the three starters. It was a Nuzlocke. We had... Some decently harsh, you know, Nuzlocke rules, but uh, nothing too crazy. Many and of the people listening to this have done their own Nuzlocke, so they're quite familiar y- yes, with the format. Yes, yes. So, so like, you know, we're not we're not wimps. We had level limits and stuff, and um, we had in our first setup like the 
We gave options to do, like, no item challenge on uh, the gym leaders on the first one, but then in the second and third, we had uh, banned items, um, for instance. And then in the uh, first one, we had you could get extra points if you didn't use any super effective moves during a gym leader battle. Okay, now I heard you said points. Uh, you should explain, I, I, there's these points do something. So there's points, um, and the various, like, I can't recall all the formats we did exactly, um, but the, the various ones were like, uh, you would get points for winning a gym match each week, then, um, you could, like, in some generations, lose points for losing a Pokemon. I think later we said it's harsh enough that they're gone. Um, you don't need to lose points on top of that. Right. Um, but uh, then the main points, the important ones, I think, came from uh, at the end of each segment, each gym, we would come together and we would have battles between a round-robin tournament between us where we would bring teams and we would fight uh, to get weekly uh, points. Okay, so this is a Nuzlocke, plus there's a weekly multiplayer element to it. Yes, yes. Um, and so, yeah, we we train the Pokemon, we, we name them, we have little stories about them, and then we come together, we talk about how... We played through, we talk about how it went, then we fight each other. The first set was just really basic. You just use your own team, um, standard standard rules kind of fight. Um, and we had a few rules just for our own tournament that were, like, just house rules. But, you know, it was just because it was stuff we could all agree upon, you know. Okay. Now, you said that you had to change the format a bit when you got to Gen 2 and Gen 3. Is that just because of what the generations themselves added, or were there weaknesses in the previous formats that you sort of were adapting? When we just each brought our own team, it became evident that the random nature of the Nuzlocke uh, kind of provided too much of a benefit if you got one really good Pokemon. There was one in particular, uh, it was a Starmie, that was just clearly better than any of the other Pokemon that anyone had, and it was able to sweep whole teams. Um, like, it, it was... Starmie Imba. Yeah, Starmie Imba when there's no good Pokemon available. Um, you know. Okay, so I feel like we're still suffering under a bit of the sort of, uh, rougher design of the early generation Pokemon. Right, right. It's, it's almost like our own Nuzlocke cage match, uh, mirrored the, the buggy Kanto design. Okay. Um, but then... Oh, and we had uh, we had a several where if one of your Pokemon uses Splash, you get an extra point, and most okay. points were in like portions of ten. Yeah. So the one point uh, y you can build them, but uh, boy, it goes slow. Okay. Um, All right. And then uh, let's think. So in Gen two, the biggest change was that we would each bring two Pokemon to a challenge, and each of us would compete with a team comprised of all three sets of two. So we have a team of six versus six, and we all have an identical mirror team okay. with all six that we brought. Yeah, I remember you telling me about this. So um, 
we would sometimes there was quite a bit of people bringing weak Pokemon on purpose to have like weird matchups or strategies that we didn't think people would be able to read. Bring until, like a good one and a bad one. Um, yeah, or ones that you thought would you could do something tricky with that wouldn't be obvious enough to like be telegraphed like there are some weird weirdo combos that i was able to find with like bad pokemon because again this isn't about like being the best so like right so you have way more options than competitive actually i feel like because you're trying to like you're trying to sabotage your opponent while you're building your own team in an okay way and so it was a lot of fun and then generation three we had a slightly new one just to keep it uh, fresh where each time you bring three Pokemon and the person you're challenging would uh, bring three and then you make the mirror teams of six at that point. Okay. I still thought a rental system was an interesting choice for a future thing where we would uh, each bring Pokemon and be able to rent from a big pool. And so we'd be creating a team, but we'd all have... Uh, the same available resources, and then we wouldn't know what the enemy had until the start of the fight. Yeah, like Pokemon Stadium style. Exactly, exactly. I thought that would be a lot of fun, but we never played uh, a fourth set because we started playing the Legacy board games. Okay. Uh, And also, we didn't... um, We sort of had a fourth person who wanted to play, but then they were kind of like in and out, and so we were waiting for a bit, and then it kind of all fell apart, and we didn't... Yeah, we just never played. I mean, that's all those things always end up working. That's what happens to every tabletop role-playing game group and anything like that. Anytime it's right. a group. Um, right. So, so moving on to the uh, scoring phase of this game, uh, it sounds like there was a, like, a very small but, like, a, an actual community of battlers that formed over time. And in this case, it was only, like, three people big, but there there was a, a community of people that were, like, learning each other's strategies the same way, like, all the high-level StarCraft people know each other. Yeah, there was... And they know each other's strategies. There was a meta to this tiny yeah, little Yeah, there was a battle. meta to this tiny community, and I really like that element. Um, it's unfortunate that the, like, the, the sort of... The design of the Pokemon games themselves sort of hurt the tournament process a bit, but not too much. I think we're going to give this four and a half Pokeballs. Um, That that sounds like a good score. Seems good. Um, Next game up is Wingspan. So we actually started playing this really recently. This is... um... I, we could say it's a board game, but it, it's like a card game. Okay. Um, you have a little play mat in front of you that uh, that has spots for different cards. But you have... Um, it's like one of those European resource management board games or, or card, like, deck build things in front of you where you're... Like uh, Dominion? Um, see, the problem is I haven't played any of the other ones. I've okay. just had Greg describe them to me. Okay. But, um, so... You have three types, and there's the woodlands that helps you get re- uh, resources mostly, and then the which resources are the five types of food. It's worms, uh, uh, cherries, um, wheat. I guess I should have said worms and wheat first because that's uh, the most common resources. Then the rare resources are cherries, rats, and fish. Okay. Um, 
And so you roll these resource dice, and the five sides of them are the five resources, and the sixth side is a um, multi-square that's either worm or wheat. Okay. And uh, you pay for birds with this, and then you can put them in uh, one of your three areas, depending on what habitats they can live in. And the different birds have different powers that give you, say, other resources. And then the next resource type is eggs, and that's from the grasslands area. And when you get eggs, then you can lay more birds in a region. At first, it doesn't cost any eggs to lay bird in a region. But once you've already got birds someplace, then it starts getting more expensive on eggs to pay for more birds in that same type of biome. Okay, so I'm, I'm getting foods, I'm using foods to buy birds and, and then, lay eggs. And then right, the eggs hatch into more birds? Right, right. So, so you, you can, once you, have the, once you have the starter resources, okay. then you can spend the resources, because you start a game and you're dealt five birds, and you're looking at your five birds, and they have various powers, and they're, they can go to different regions, they cost different things, and there's like a lot, because we have the, um, the expansion in okay. it, so it's like, I think it's like 150 cards. So okay. there's like a lot, a lot of birds. And um, and so they all have various strengths and weaknesses. There's lots of builds. There are ones that are clearly super overpowered. There are ones that are clearly bad. So there's just a lot of luck involved. All right. And then you... So you have this hand of five. And you want to discard down because you also start with five food resources. But you have to turn in one food resource for each card you keep. Okay. So generally, our strategy is to discard down to two, or if you have really good ones, discard down only to three. It's rare for someone to go down to one or to stay with four or five. Okay, so you you said there's three regions, and I heard about... A forest and a grassland. Yep, and then there's the wetlands, and in the okay. wetlands you get uh, you get cards. So there, you just say like I'm taking cards, and you can either take one of the three face-up cards that you can see on the board, or you can take from the deck at any time the face-down deck. Okay. Um, and uh, so obviously, if a really good card comes up face-up, you want to take it before anybody else takes it. Uh, but you can build up an engine to take cards just like you build up anything else. Like, I would often, uh, like, say, use a move to, I'd go down, down to my wetlands and I take three to start, because I have, like, four birds in that area, and then each bird has a separate power that lets me cycle cards where I can look at lots of them. And let's say I only get to keep four, but I've seen, like, maybe nine cards, so I can get some really good ones. Okay. And I can also build up a nice stock of cards to turn in for points on different bird powers, because some birds are predators, and they need to eat other cards. Okay. And the points... Is it, like, just whoever has the most points at the end? Like, do the points buy you something else? No, no, no. At the end of the game, it's it's points. And each bird itself has a point value. Some are zero because they have powers that are really good, and you just want that power. But they themselves, despite costing resources, don't get you anything directly. Or some have lots of spots for eggs. Every egg has to sit on a bird, and that bird has to have, like, available nest space. And so every bird, one of its little stats is its nest type. So like a tree nest, a cone nest, um, a stone nest. Okay. I think there's 
There's a couple others, but it doesn't matter too much. There's different types, and then there's also the number they can hold. So, like, the grebe could, say, hold... Uh, the common grebe could hold six, maybe. I, I don't know if that's true, but it can hold a lot, and then there's some that can hold only one because they're a tiny bird, and they don't have... Right. Thing. There are some, like the cowbirds, that lay eggs in other birds' nests, um, or when other people lay eggs. So, there's a lot going on. You're just sort of like the spirit of birds <laughs> that manages birds and gets points? I guess maybe you're Who an are you playing as during this game? I don't know. I just love it. There's like these beautiful bird illustrations. Okay. Uh, uh, and and it you get you get it going and every turn you get a million points and you get like all these resources and it's... some things like feed resources to other people so okay. when I'm losing I'll like build stuff that will give other people stuff because sure. I'm like how many points can we rack up on this stupid game so this sounds this sounds like like a board game version of like Candy Crush or Farmville it's like. No, There's no. just all these little rules and just all these little moving parts. Okay, but and it feels like you're kind of doing this weird bird gambling, and like you're pulling okay. a bird con. <laughs> okay, but it's, it's not a it's not it's not a, a con. Um, I I know it sounds more like a con man by the second. My flim flam has fallen apart. Um. I think. <laughs> I think we're going to have to give this game three eggs out of five. No, this game is amazing. <laughs> this, I is, mean, this is one of my favorites of the year. Like we've, I've seen the art on Steam. The art seems okay. No, you, but the gameplay itself is, is amazing. You seem really devoted to the gameplay, but also it's like, I can't tell what you're doing in this game. Or like... That there's a, like like a betrayal of House in the Hill. That there's like a story that you're doing these haunted house scenarios. In the bird thing, I just but like <laughs> it's birds. I'm I'm sorry. It can only get three eggs. I'm sorry. Oh no. That's that's, that's the the cruel reality of having a separate score. What a disparity. <laughs> the only way to have a true fair score. <laughs> All right. Uh, next up is the. The Arkham Horror Card Game. So this one, um, I barely played any of this year, but this one is, uh, like, uh, there's an Arca Ar Arkham Horror board game that I've only played once, and they're kind of similar, that's all I can really say. Uh, the card game has seemingly more of a um, campaign-style story, which, as you can tell, I like that in a game. Um... And so you play as a couple different characters in, like, a Cthulhu mythos setting, and whatever scenario you set up, it's, like, really tough, and everything kills you, but you can build up a deck of different cards that give you perks and weapons and little ways to escape fights, and there's a lot of things, like, Fighting is really hard in the game, so there's a lot of other things that you're doing. You're trying to run away a lot, and you're trying to search for clues in different regions, because it's a game... It's not like Random Area, like uh, Betrayal, but it's like a preset map of like each location that's a little bit interconnected, and there will be maybe like five to eight in a scenario. And so you're running around either a town or, say, uh, 
you know, a haunted mansion style. Right. But but so each scenario has an assigned map for it, but there's different maps. Yeah, and you'll like start in a specific room and like it'll be really specific, hyper specific scenario where it's like this door is locked. You need to find clues to get this door unlocked or oh, okay. you'll get burned down because the room is catching fire on the other side. Okay. So it's like really specific like like Indiana Jones movie, but there's Cthulhu monsters. All right, all right. And there's random elements to it, but it seemed like a lot of it... Like, I liked how prescribed it was. So, you... So, there's multiple players, and they're each their own character, and they have, like, item inventory? Is it, like, like yeah, Munchkin? It's, it's, like, one or two players, and okay. you have a hand of cards, and there are, like... There's a thing that's just called, like... Uh, I'm sure it's got a better name, but it's, like, resource tokens that you use to activate some, like, expensive items... And then, like, you have actions per turn. And everything's really limited, so you're, like, making really hard choices every turn because it's one of those games. So it's like a... It feels like it's more maybe like a puzzle than a lot of things would be. It is like a puzzle, but there's also, like, dice roll-based fighting where, like... You can get really badly, like, splattered just by, like, taking a fight you thought you could win and getting a really bad roll. So, hmm. There's luck. It's it's like a lot of Mythos stuff where you're just expected to, like, like the idea that you're, you're really expendable is part of it. Well, so let me ask you this. Are you expected... To play a scenario more than once, if you die, are you supposed to um, reset and play it again until you win? I, you know, we haven't gone back and played any specifically, but I am interested in playing the first scenario again, being better at the game. We've only played like you know a handful of times, but uh, it, it, like there's sometimes like there's win conditions where you get perks for the future missions, lose conditions where, like, things will be changed around for future missions, and then there's, like, even, like, the first time I played the very first mission, I knew I couldn't possibly win, so there was an escape condition, and I was able to escape, but uh, the other person playing, their character was eaten by the ghoul priest. By the ghoul priest. The dang ghoul priest. The dang ghoul priest. Okay. Um... Hmm. Did, do you have anything else that you want to add? I'm not... Um, it's interesting. I, I it's a I've, really, really hard game, so it's I've probably the, not for most players, but I really like it. Yeah, I've heard of the idea of these sort of like one or two player games before, but I've never played any myself. I'm also going to put this out there. Probably some listener is going to be like, I played that game and it's for little babies, but that just means that I'm a little baby and I, I don't care. Well, that's okay, because we're often little babies on this. In fact, I think um, not, because this is coming out tomorrow, but after tomorrow, I'm going to do another uh, game where I'm even more of a little baby. Like, I'm literally applying, like, multiple patches to the game to make the game easier, because I don't want to play Dark Souls. It's the the other, the the thing. For the thing. We're not going to say, but remember the thing I played before we started recording this? No, but we'll just talk about it after. It's okay. fine. Okay, all right. Just tell me after. It's fine. Um, um, so anyway, the... Uh, I, I... How many scenarios would you say are in this Arkham Horror game? Uh, 
I'm not sure because the th- the box set we have that's a physical version only has three, but like there are a lot of expansions that we have on the on the tabletop simulator. I'm not even okay. sure like how many. It just has a lot of stuff. Okay, okay. Because like each, I think each expansion has like a couple characters, and we have like more than a dozen characters, and each thing comes with like a little compendium with all this like. All right, all right, I like that. I think that we're going to... We could actually play Hot Seat sometime. Yeah. I think I think we're going to give this a uh, 3.5... Three and a half Elder Signs is, is about what I think that game gets. Um, actually, you know, yeah, and I was... I'm wondering if I... I'm kind of remembering that I had a hard time finding a good tabletop simulator version of that. I just know that we saw how many, like, little side bits there were, and it was right. like, dang. Yeah. Um, but, and then... So next up we have Azul. Azul. Um, I have played a lot of Azul, so has William, and uh, we have played it... More than just, some of these we've actually only played starting during 2020. Obviously, Pokemon we played before 2020, but I think Azul we've also played before 2020. Yeah, Azul I've been playing for several years uh, with with a different group, uh, and I've played uh, like I know you've played a lot, but I've played like a lot, a lot. Um, I've I've played the game like eight to ten times. Oh no, no I I've, you've played okay, it. So I've played it like um, definitely triple figures, um, but. Uh, yeah, just like uh, it is a tile game where you pick up little tokens from the center of a uh, little play area. I mean, I won't get super into the specifics, but you build up an area, and the more contiguous your um, tokens are, then you get more points, and you go like round by round getting points, and you ha- want to have like a nice little wall. And you're making. I don't know, just like a tile wall. So so I think the fiction of the game is that you are, like, putting the outside artist tokens on, like, a the brick wall of a house or something like that. You're decorating a wall in an artistic way, and so you need to have these multi-colored, like, blue and red and orange tiles and stuff that you're putting up in this pattern. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. And, uh... Yeah, they're, they're just, they have nice little patterns. They're all very obvious what each piece is because there's only five different types and they, they look great. Um, the, the board is very simple. Uh, so this is a, a multiplayer competitive game. There's no teams in Azul, right? That's correct. I mean, actually that'd be interesting to combine points with, say, the person across from you. Um, okay. And do like... Uh, like a little team score that way. That could be fun. Yeah. But, uh, but I have never... It's always been a full competitive game. Um, it can make it a little more stressful sometimes. But uh, I do like to just make a really good board. Um, it's like some of the other games that aren't on this list that I actually miss. Like um, we used to play Between Two Cities quite a bit. And uh, that's a game where you... It's a similar type of game, but you're just building up a city types between players who have to share points okay, i so, like the sharing point idea okay it's fun. so in azul uh, each person yeah. is building up 
their wall, but there's no like attacking the other players' walls or anything. You, there's quite you, a bit you of take um, tiles that they want, and that's about yeah. It. There's just there's counter picking, and there's like a lot of counter picking. It can be a nice game, or it can be a super spiteful game. Okay. Okay. Um. Well, well we can do we have it. more to say about Azul? Um. No, I don't think we do. Okay, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm I, ready to give Azul four multicolored tiles, um, which I'm not sure... It's a little hard to explain the game and justify that four tiles uh, but the problem without is, having... The problem is you've played it. Yeah, so I've, can't I've give played it, an it so score. I can't give it a totally, a totally impartial score. I think... Based on just your review, I might actually have to give it only three tiles because... I know, it's hard to explain rev- what's good about yeah, it. Yeah, of the reviews you've given, that was one of the weaker reviews. But well, uh, you, you felt been, positive about it, but you just didn't give it a very strong review. I've just been, like, trying to pitch people that game, and, like, successfully, for, like, several years. And so it's, like, I'm a little burnt out on telling people, like, why Azul is cool. Well... Like, it's not like Wingspan, where, you know, like, honestly, I want everybody to know how awesome Wingspan but is. But when you say that, though, that, like, you've been trying to pitch people on it for years to the point where, like, you're, you're running out of steam to pitch people on the game, that itself is a really strong endorsement of the game. It's, I guess that is true. No. I think I think that might justify the fourth colored tile. Okay, yeah, that's fair. All right, um, so... Well, we, we, there was one that you got. Do, do you want to do that? Or do you want to skip we'll that one? We'll skip that one. I think the last time we played it was actually in December of last year, not this year. Okay. And it's not... It, there, there wasn't a whole lot to that. That felt like we never experienced the game with enough people. That's fair. The game was called Mind Hive. It was about, like... Hive Mind. Hive Mind. I like it better as Mind Hive. Um, it's about being a bee, and you have to, well, like, all write down answers to questions and try and, like, match each other, and it would be really cool with a big group because there'd be a lot of people to either match or not match with, but in a small group, the way the game worked, uh... Yeah, I think the biggest we ever played was, like, four people. Yeah, four is not enough. I yeah, felt like it needed, like, a minimum of, like, eight. I th- yeah, I think the game is intended to be, like, a six to ten person game. Yeah, and I mean, it, it has no distinct upper limit because of the format of the game but um which is interesting because most games get really clunky and bad with a lot but i think it would work if there was like a discord bot or something that could run it in a whole chat room that would be pretty cool yeah i think it would be a really good text game actually like an internet text game yeah yeah um but i mean that's for your programming to decide uh for programming to decide okay so so we'll move on to the list itself uh Hades. This is a, a video game. Hades. Slightly popular. A few people like this game. Hades has been out as like a like a beta form since 2018, but I only played it once it came out on Switch. And Hades is my top uh, video game of the year. It is uh, one of the only new video games I've played this year. Um, uh, I'm sure I've played new video games this year, but I just don't remember a lot of them. Well, a short hike I played this year, I guess. Uh, yeah, I played a short hike this year, and that, it's an interesting game. But, but Hades is, is um, in my opinion, um, like a, a much. It, it's an indie game technically, but it's like a triple A game compared to a short hike. Sure. Um, it it's got like tons and tons of voice acting, like 
like tens of thousands of recorded lines kind of thing. Well, like, I think a short hike was from like yeah. a first time developer. And yeah, I, think I know. And Hades is Hades like an is like ultra polished game. game. Yeah, it's so like a third game by that crew. It's hard for me to compare the two games because sure. the one is like a tiny, tiny thing, and the other is like this okay. huge, sprawling. Sprawling. Yeah, well, I mean, you do the same thing over and over again, but the story is very wide. Like, you, All right. you hear lots of dialogue and you understand the characters a lot. All right. So we, we're liking the dialogue. We're liking the characters. So it's it's the Greek gods, but, like, you know, new and, and just... A, if you're one of those people who's like, oh, it's not this exact whatever, you're probably going to complain about the story. There are people like that about the Greek gods especially. Yeah. And, but um, they de- they want they don't want any changes over time to their legends, which is the exact opposite of how legends work. Even though historically, at the time, it was a whole bunch of people trying to get like like selling their own version essentially of of these storylines, like like plays and stuff. And they'd be like, "Come watch our awesome show about Zeus. He has these cool powers, lightning bolts this time, guys. And then that one's cool enough. Lightning bolt sticks." Everybody thinks he can shoot lightning, and now he does. Um, And so, you know, legends evolve, and this time they're awesome, and some of the characters have British accents for some reason. Yeah. You know, even though it's supposed to be Greek. Um, Well, so, I mean, I think I I heard it in some movie uh, review thingy the other day that, like, a British accent is the American audience's key to instant sophistication. Like, if you use a British accent... That character is a sophisticated character within the minds of American viewers. I think that's true. I think that is an accurate assessment now that I'm thinking of how I view the characters. Because, like, the more pompousy that somebody sounds in the game and the more Britishy they sound, like, the more highborn they are. Yeah, I think it was like, like, they were reviewing All Quiet on the Western Front, a movie by a German author in set in Germany, but there's a bunch of characters with British accents. And it's like, well, of course the officers have British accents. <laughs> Right, right. Um, so, you know, the, there's there's a bunch of, like, wacky versions of, of the different uh, Greek characters that you have a housemaid at the House of Hades who is, like, a Gorgon head, but just, like, a floating Gorgon head because that's one of the enemy types is, like, you know, they, they spit petrify bolts at you. Okay, so... Um, <clears throat> We're, we're liking the setting and context of this game. What is the gameplay itself like? When we're playing the game, what are we doing? So imagine if you thought to yourself... Uh, well, I'll say this for the, for the main audience who have played like more normalish games. Like Diablo 2 style gameplay, but much faster. And you're not like building up skill points. You're just using... The skills. And you don't, like, click on character to attack. But it's, like, isometric. You're moving around a field of play where the enemies will take attacks at you. But if you've moved out of the way, you don't take damage. You can dash, you know, to move quickly and to get a few invincibility frames. You uh, have different attacks with different weapon loadouts. And there's six main weapon types. And beyond that, each of them has four major aspects but then beyond that, each your primary attack, special, your cast, which is a different type of thing, uh, and then your dash, and your being able to call a god. All five of these distinct moves are are different, and the 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 
call the cast and the uh, dash are just the same no matter what, uh, but then the weapon determines like what the primary and the special attack will be. So every one of the 24 main loadouts has like a different primary and secondary attack okay. with each of the different god boons. So that's like seven different per. So there's all these, and they're, they're like predictable combos. It's like you know exactly the results you'll get if you add X god to Y weapon. And it's really good because you can like decide oh, I know which of these things will chain well together, what this strength will bring out in the weapon. And did you say, like, you pick your initial loadout and then you get random options for add-ons after that? Yes, so you pick, okay. and initially you start out with, like, just the sword in just your initial aspect, and then you buy, the cheapest one is, like, the bow. So you buy your next weapon, uh, with stuff that you get from going in on runs. And you, you do, it's a run-based RPG where you're attempting to, like, go down and you fight your way through Tartarus, which is the lowest level, then you are ascending upward to try and escape from Hades. You are Prince Zagreus, the son of Hades, and you want to escape to the surface and then go to Mount Olympus. Okay. And you are being helped by your godly relatives. Uh, the first you meet is Athena, but there are main ones. It's Athena, Aphrodite, Zeus, Poseidon, um, Ares, Dionysus, Artemis, Demeter, or Demeter, but in the game they always say Demeter. Okay, um, if they say Demeter, that's fine. And then uh, Hermes... And I think there might be one more, but there's also Chaos, which is, like, uh, in this setting, the every god, like, uh, the Titans and then, like, Nyx, who is the goddess of night, uh, butted off from Chaos, and then the other stuff came down from there. But everything roots back to the god Chaos, which looks like uh, one of those... Final Fantasy, like you know that weird monster from uh, Mario RPG that's that's just like a Square Enix final boss. Sure. It looks like that. Okay. Um, it looks like a goopy monster. Goopy monster. All right. But with like a like a manly bod at the top. Oh, like um, like a Kingdom Hearts end boss. <laughs> all right. All right. Um. Gotta have that manly bod. I mean, it's everyone's game of the year. And it's got the fast it, gameplay. It's, it's got, got the, the graphics. Gameplay. I like the enemy movement. I sure. like all the the add-ons. The post game's incredible. Okay. I had like specific things where I I knew that it would take me a, a fair number of runs to get through to to win, and I set myself a goal of twenty five runs, and I was able to push myself to on my first try through win uh, the the thing against Hades the first time. Uh, at 23 attempts. So that was pretty cool to beat my um, little self-set goal. Now, what did you base that initial number of 25 on? I was guessing at the difficulty curve that they would want for this kind of game. Okay. I've played Bastion, or, yeah, I've played Bastion, and I've played um, uh, Transistor, and I've played a lot of, uh, like, these roguelite-style games, like Rogue Legacy, and like um, 
uh, Mana Spark and Wizard of Legend especially. I've played a lot of Wizard of Legend. Like if the audience played more of these games, I would have said the gameplay is sure. most akin to Wizard of Legend. Sure. Um, but um, it's also like like Bastion a lot. Their first game of right, the same game right. company, Supergiant. And I think Supergiant games are basically like my favorite genre, like the kind of game Bastion and Hades are. And the the way Hades extends and has like all these different challenges. I've actually over the past few days specifically been retraining myself. Like one of the things is called forced overtime, where all enemies get um, it's in two increments of twenty, but I have them at the max. They get forty percent uh, increased speed and attack speed, and so you basically have to relearn the whole game because the enemies are so because. That's such a difference compared to any of the other... Um, the timings are different. Yeah. Right, right. And so I'm retraining myself on the uh, on Forced Overtime, and then I'm going to try and get used to some of the other settings. But I had been getting up to higher heat levels, which is how you measure like the uh, the self-set difficulty in the post-game. Okay. Uh, I had been getting up most of the weapons close to 20, but then I was having a hard time... Um, sort of breaking that barrier so uh i've been retraining with yeah full forced overtime a single setting for the timer so i have a time limit on myself so i can't just stall to win because there are a lot of builds where i could dodge quite a bit and then hit and whatever but i would never be yeah, able I've to seen that there's like you do a dodge and it shoots a lightning at the enemies so you can just dodge a lot yeah there's some silly stuff like that but you want that to be kind of part of your combo like if you're, like, aggressively dodging into enemies, um, rather than, like, just running away for, forever, because, you know, you want to be able to have that um, enforced time limit as part of the heat so that you can get a few easy heat points. Because, like, the game gets incredibly difficult with the more and more heat. Um, I mean, that's, that's the whole point of it. It's called the Pact of Punishment. Um and so it's fun to to self-impose these challenges, and uh, I'm I'm relearning the bosses to uh, one by one because uh, they have uh, normal mode and then like an enhanced mode, and the enhanced mode of uh, the final boss is incredibly difficult in my opinion. So do the bosses show up in like a set order, or are they random? They do like in a pool of bosses to pick from. So. It's kind of both. Uh, in Tartarus, you end by fighting one of the Furies. And when you're first playing through the game, it's always Megara. And then uh, eventually you fight Alecto, and then uh, then you fight Tisiphone. And it's not like... I don't think that they're distinctly like one is harder than the other. I think they're all about as hard as each other, but they're they do different attacks. And I'm sure, like... I'm sure that one of them is, like, the easy one or something. But um, but I think they're all pretty cool bosses. And then the enhanced version of them is that multiple of them will fight you at the same time. Okay. So one, a primary one has the health bar, and then all the others, uh, up to three, will drop in and do attacks. Um, and then uh, there's the Hydra and just different head types have different attack types. And then the bonus version of the Hydra is that instead of having a main land mass and then lava around the edges where, uh, skeleton Hydra heads come out, then the 
main section is cracked and there's just platforms within a lot. Like, so it's like islands of safe rather than a main safe landmass. And then like lots okay. of dangerous lava and you have to dash between the platforms because you have limited heat resistance because you're like from, you know, you've got Hades powers. You got Hades powers. But you're also like, like not fully Hades guy. It's whatever. You're heat resistant. Hades, son of Hades. Yes, exactly. All right. All right. I think, I think we've talked about this quite a bit. Quite a bit. And it's everyone's game of the year. Yeah. It's very addicting. I think we can give it five lightning bolts to move on. Yeah, yeah. We've got Gloomhaven. This one we've been going crazy over on Tabletop Simulator. It's like kind of like D&D in a box, but with a much more interesting, as far as I'm concerned, uh, combat system. Okay. And so you read a little adventure thing where it's like, you go into town and X happens. Which of these two decisions do you make? And then you make a decision. A thing happens. Then you get a little bonus, maybe. You then decide on a mission to go fight at, do a little road event, another little bit of flavor. Then you're in a little, like, fight scenario, essentially. Like, you've gone into this kobold cave, let's say. Sure. And then you've got to, like, barrel your way through. And the different scenarios have, um, you know, of course, different win conditions, like, different special rules, etc. But this game has a lot of really good... Uh, monster AI, where you draw a card from a specific stack that's specific to the monster type that will tell you how the monsters act this turn. Like that's what, interesting. Yeah, what their AI is, and um, it can. They have base stats of movement, attack, range, and like say retaliate is a special they could have, um, and they have these. But then on their turn, when you draw from the top of their deck you see, oh, so this turn they're going to quickly move up to us but have a lower attack value. And then on the next turn, maybe they turtle up and they have higher defense and a retaliate. Um, but it's just whatever the stack says. And they all have, like, different types of monsters can have special moves. Like, cultists can deal damage to themselves to summon skeletons, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, Would you compare this to that... Um the Warlock of Firetop Mountain game on the Switch that we have? I haven't played enough of that. I would compare this to Battletech, kind of, in okay. terms of the way the grid feels and, like, running around. And, like, you you have... Well, when you're going I was thinking in, more on, like, the way you're sort of randomly generating a scenario based on cards. Oh, no, this... you get into fight. Uh... Well, you're drawing, like, the road events or whatever, but the scenarios themselves are, like... It's like if you looked at a little diagram and you'd be putting the tokens in the exact right spots. So oh, okay. it's more like one of those, um, like, uh, what's that game? Uh, Hero Quest. You know, Hero from Quest. a famous YouTube video. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like how the rooms are supposed to have guys on exact tiles. Okay. And then from there, the AI is good from the card stacks. Ah. Uh, um, is this. I think Sam had a game that was like that, that we might have played once. Yes, but the actions in that were very simple. You just, like, would move and attack and so forth, and different people had little specials they could do. In this game, the part I wanted to get to is that the way that you fight is 
each character has a deck of cards that they bring in that are like their move set. And each card has a top action, which let's say is usually an attack, and a bottom action, which is usually a move action. And at any time, you can use a card as a basic attack to or a basic move to with the top or the bottom. But every round, you pick two cards, and each of them uses, like, it's a pair. So one of them is the top and one's the bottom, and just you decide which is which. And one of the two is your initiative. And a high initiative, like, a 99 is what a long rest is, and so that's the slowest action. And then, like, one of my quickest actions uh, with my Scoundrel, who's a very fast character, is, like, a 4. Um, so oh, you're so, getting, like, so, right up in their face. So like, lower wins. It's, like, yeah. 4 is 4th place. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, 1 would be the fastest possible action. Um, actually, I'm not sure if 0 is allowed, but um, I've never seen one. Uh, anyway... So you uh, determine in, uh, initiative with one of your cards. So you're both deciding which moves, uh, and you're prioritizing, like, to move fast allows you to fight early, but it draw like, that's how you set aggro. And okay. to move slow can allow you to avoid aggro, but you can't necessarily, like, kill a monster before it attacks your friend. Um, right, right, okay. And uh, so there's a lot of, there's a balancing act there. Um, and the game has modular difficulty for different numbers of players and for higher and lower difficulty generally. So you can, like, tune it if you think it's too easy. But so far, when we've played, um, just the, the basic player difficulty has been, like, a good, like, a fun setting. So when you play... You, you set out the scenario it says, but then there's not, like, a person that plays as the monsters. It's not like a D&D. Um, there's right. Like each person's playing their own hero, and then the monsters are supposed to be basically automated. Right, and because we're using the, uh, the uh, tabletop simulator mode, it's actually, like, it actually is automated. Like, all the decks flip when you hit the, like, begin new round button. And then there's, like, a little drop-down next to the initiative order that says what a monster's action set is. Um, okay. And um, so it's, like, very... It's very clear because there's a lot of, like, little um, clarifications to make sure that people understand, like, the order of things and whether or not a monster moves and how it determines who to go to to hit. Um, okay, okay, I like it, I like it. And they fight smart, they fight dirty. <laughs> they fight dirty? Yeah. <laughs> They're automated, and they still fight dirty. No, it's true. <laughs> alright, alright, is there anything else that you want to say about Gloomhaven before I give it a score? Um, so we're just scratching the surface now. We've played for maybe three to four weeks, and uh, we're only playing... At first we were trying to play twice a week, but it, it's quite long sessions, so we're only playing once a week now, and um, uh, we've just graduated our first character, the scoundrel, and she was the, the human scoundrel. She was kind of like a, a lady Han Solo, and her goal, because you can pick a character goal at the start from two that you draw, and it's like a permanent goal to increase the city. And her goal was that she thinks people who go fight the monsters forever are suckers. So she tried to get 
enough money and you get individual character money, not party money. So she got enough individual money to buy all these items and make an item shop. And so not only does this add her to a deck of random events where she is a a positive event event for us, so we're less likely to get burned uh, by something awful, uh, but also the selection of items that other characters can buy is increased... And by completing this specific goal, I unlocked a new character class, the Quartermaster. So I had to lose four, or I had to lose two levels from my level four scoundrel to become a retired character, and then to you have a prosperity level of your city, sure. and ours is only two, so my Quartermaster is only level two. So I lost a couple levels, but I'm like a new guy now. Um, so this is also a legacy game, is what you're telling me. Well, yeah. Um, You're revealing this at the last possible moment that there is. This is also a legacy game. Yeah, you have to improve oh your city, gosh. and you have gold, and you you like buy. Well, it's like it's a lot like Hades. It's a, like Hades is a legacy game because you you get the currencies for the different. Well, yeah, but usually video and you games build up that. relationships. Well, All yeah, right, but. But also, I forgot to say Secret Hades... Secret Legacy game Gloomhaven. I forgot to say Hades is a dating sim, too. Oh, my gosh. Okay. And I have a virtual girlfriend now. It's Megara. Oh. I fight her as the first boss, and we kiss sometimes. Well, that's very Japanese. Um, all right. I'm going... I was going to give Gloomhaven four battle axes, but I I think you'd like, like it. I think you'd have a fun time. I think with time. the secret legacy rules, it might get four and a half battle axes. I do want to. I want to um, uh, say, like, I didn't emphasize enough, just the intricacies of the cards, like how the attack movements work, and how like like what you're weighing against each other. Because if you have a really good card, the top is good and the bottom is good usually. So you're sacrificing the ability to either use a really powerful movement option or a really powerful attack option. Hard choices do make for a good game. However, very long play sessions to the point where you can't play it twice a week. Gotta be points off for that. Well, yeah, but that's how D&D is. Yeah, but okay. D and D loses a lot of points in a lot of ways. <laughs> That's true. I think this is more fun than playing traditional D and D. Okay. I do like sometimes when we have a really bonkers setting, like the Sunwell or something. But just the fights are so much better than D twenty style. Yeah, I'm sure there's got to be some better way to play, have D and D be a game than anything that's ever existed because they're all crap in different ways. If it had a fighting system like Gloomhaven, it would be much more interesting. Yeah. But it's hard because the Reason- fighting system like revolves around the fact that you're going to exhaust after a certain number of turns, so you have to like be smart about how you're moving around the board. I mean, recently I proposed on uh, the NoCat Discord that like... Most Final Fantasies would be better if you took out 100% of the fighting from the entire game. And I stand by that. That's pretty much... Yeah, you could improve every Final Fantasy by just... As soon as the fight music starts, it goes straight to the victory screen, and you don't have to do it, and that would be a better game. So there. I think that some of the stuff from Final Fantasy X, where you do the strategic combat, I think if they just tweak the numbers so you won faster... But, like, the when you're messing with the crane to defeat the Machina... Yeah, ten, 10 actually is... It's like the, the story's incorporated into the fight. I didn't really get up, so upset. Mm. Or, like, if they just made it faster. Like, in Final Fantasy VI, 
it's fun to start the fights, but then after like 60 seconds, I'm pretty much done with that and I don't want to keep doing it. Mm. I want it to just be over. Um, oh, you know, another bonus for Hades is it's a fast game. Emphasizes speed to oh the point God. where... No, Hades is so fast, I probably couldn't play it. I've seen you play it and I'm not good at the Twitchy there, game. There's a specific power that it boosts all your, uh, your attack and your special attack, but only for the first 10 seconds of a fight. Oh my and a lot of the times I can build a build that's so fast it's just like burning through everybody like that. Yeah. Alright, well, next on the list we've got two more games. Second from the last game, a penultimate game, is <laughs> Lovecraft Letter. And so Lovecraft Letter, very basic card game. It's like the game Love Letter where you basically play different cards and they have different abilities and, and various ones like... Um, like in the base in the base set, there's only uh, a few different abilities. You know, just one per card number, and uh, there's a lot of the low number cards, and there's only a few of the high. It only goes between one and eight um, in the basic set, and you're you're essentially trying to. A lot of cards have the power to knock out players, and you're trying to just stay in the round. And at the end of the round, you want to be holding on to in your uh, hand the highest numbered card or you just want to defeat everybody in lovecraft letter it's way more about just killing everybody um because there's uh an entire other system where you um start as sane and you can go insane during the match but it's like dangerous to do that because every round you have to draw a card and it's well, basically every, like a, every time it's your turn you have to draw yeah every time it's your turn you have to draw one card per insane card that's in front of you and if any of those cards are insane you are out of the round um and the benefit of being insane is that the second time and onward you get the incredibly powerful insane effects of a card and so your is another cthulhu game of course by the name and uh, so you you get like amped up by by being a crazy Cthulhu man. Um, Cthulhu man. And uh, I I mean there's there's like specific story to like why you do and don't survive and what you're doing. Like in the original one, it's much more clear. Like you're trying to hand a letter to someone who will give it to the princess, and then if you get enough favor from the princess, she falls in love with you. And you get the princess's hand in marriage. So, like, very that's, simple story. that's very clear. In Lovecraft Letter, I know that you are, a, like, an archaeologist slash scientist, and you're searching for your brother, uh, and if you find the wrong things, you die. And if you find the right, the elder sign, you can live, probably. Um, so, zero points for story. It's got very good art, and I feel like I'm in the setting when I'm looking at the art. The art is very good. I'm going to agree. And I want to put this out there. We have a specific type of thing, uh, uh, reskin that we made for it a long time ago with a physical set uh, where we put in note cards. That's the Christmas edition, so, you know, good content for Boxing Day, uh, where each card has a different little Christmas theme thing, and the, the Cthulhu is, of course, Santa Claus. Good. Um, good, so, good. Yeah, and it's uh, a lot of fun. Like, the the one that kills you if you have Santa is the elf on a shelf. Okay. <laughs> so, um, 
You didn't mention it, but I'm gonna I'm gonna add this in. Oh sure, sure. That each round of Lovecraft letter is pretty quick. Very like, quick. You, it's you, very fast. You do a round, maybe three minutes would be like an average round sure. time. And uh, so you can just get through the rounds fast. You can keep track of like the points of who won round after round. We usually you don't do. even Yeah, you don't even have to. Like if you if you need to go do something like if people are sort of in and out of the room, you can sit down, play for a little bit, go out. Well, the good thing is you can leave, and like uh, if you're if you're getting up and down from the table between games and whatever, you can still leave your win chips there and then come back because there's little physical poker chips in the game set. Yeah. And one side has for sanity victories an elder sign, and the other side has. A little cartoonized Cthulhu face for an insane victory. Cartoon Cthulhu. And, you know, it's probably not very PC that's the insanity, whatever, but, uh, you know. Lovecraft wasn't very PC. Yeah. Lovecraft is a problematic fave, to Some, say the least. Sometimes we do our best. Sometimes he's not even our fave. He's just problematic. He's just a problematic. Yeah. Um, all right, Lovecraft letter. We're going to give it... Uh, Four, four elder signs. Seems, seems like a fair score. Uh, last but not least, uh, we have another Pandemic Legacy season. This is season two. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we've talked about season one, taking that as read. I think we can assume that people have gotten through the season one review mm-hmm. because it's in this very same episode. Yeah, it's just What the is start of new the about season two that justifies an entirely so, new thing? Season two is almost the opposite of the first game, where cubes are building up, you're trying to take them off the board because cubes are disease. In this, you are putting supply cubes down. This is in the distant future, after Pandemic Legacy Season 1, where the world's governments failed to stop the uh, second pandemic, and actually the first pandemic that you did stop uh, in the first game led to the people, like, one of the... This is a reveal that I feel like I can just tell, like, ooh, what a twist! Um, uh, Because it doesn't change the gameplay. But you are playing as the people who were affected and had a physical deformity, um, that their skin becomes translucent, uh, and they were called the Fated. And so these people are... uh, you are them coming back to the world from uh, quarantine ships that they were on, like big city ships, and you are saving what is left of the different continents and what's left of the world, despite the fact that you were, like, pushed out. Uh, You're still the good guys, and you're like, we're gonna fight your hate with supplies, and you give them supplies. So that's pretty cool. Okay. Um, and so you supply these different cities and you open routes and you keep exploring the world and expanding the capabilities of how far your sh- ships tr- can travel. And so at first the world starts out as... So it's some sort of secret mercantilism game. Well, but you're not getting money. There's no money. You're just trying to keep all the cities supplied. Okay. It's kind of like a... It's like a communism simulator where your whole goal is to really efficiently put the supplies where they're needed so that nobody gets a disease because of the marxist socialist communists yeah because we're the we're the insert slurs here (laughs) um so anyway uh 
we we are you know trying to help everybody we're we're moving around and you just keep attaching new cities you start with it's like new york jacksonville dc and then like um sao paulo i think and um there's like different cities that you start with and there's ones in europe and you start with like nine cities um in europe africa south america and north america it's only atlantic ocean stuff so so you start with some cities and then you spread out your supply network that's right and the board actually it's really cool it starts out like near you can't see anything that you can't get to you can only see the the open oceans and then the the cities you can get to and a little bit inland and then you actually put on new stickers onto the board that add map sections and so you're adding filled in spaces what i think uh, my question is getting to is like what is taking away these supplies points after you put out supplies it's essentially like when people get diseases then that takes the supplies down and it's like food supplies medical supplies uh i shouldn't phase away from the mic my word um food supplies medical supplies and um it's also uh, that the disease, if there's no supplies whatsoever in a city when its card is pulled up, that city will have an infection outbreak. And so people do get sick and the okay. city's population level is affected. And so in the first game, cities could only ever be hurt and they would go from a zero and an increased panic level. But in this game, instead of being a panic level, it's a population level. So the population level starts at a certain level, and it can go to zero, and the city would be, like, forsaken. But uh, we managed to make that never happen. Like the first game, we've actually played this two times through. The second time through, we had a a novice who was guiding our party's decisions, so we didn't just use a bunch of foreknowledge. Um, Did you get a forsaken city? We didn't want to cheat. No, no, we didn't get a forsaken city either time. Okay. We did very well. Um, we're, We're pretty, like... We're, we're very strategic about it, and, like, uh, the fun part for us is trying to do as well as possible, not, like, speeding through. Um, so, we... Pandemic legacy, any percent? Yeah, we're not doing the any percent. We're doing the, the, uh, we're trying to do the, the high score run. Um, uh... And so you have different options, and the different characters all have different powers, and you can upgrade characters and increase, like, options. And, you know, you have endgame points that you can add based on how many cities that you have in your grid. And uh, first you, like, recon new continents, like, um, uh, there's one for North America, one for South America, one for Africa, one for... Um, Europe, then one for Eastern Europe, one for, uh, sort of, uh, the, it's like the Middle East and then on to Russia. And then there's one for Southeast Asia and a final one for, uh, like Oceania over to Japan and so forth. And so it's like you eventually unlock almost everything and now, do you um, unlock each of these regions every game or over the course of the season it's over the course of the season um like in the first in the first section there most of them are 
would be fully impossible to unlock at the very start because okay. as you unlock cities, you unlock more city cards, which are what you use to um, to do the recons in the first place. So the game sort of feeds into itself, like you unlock barriers as you go, but there's also like specific in-game requirements where like you need to collect these cards during a play session right. and actually hand them in. Okay. Um, so it's a lot of fun. Well. Yeah. What do we give Pandemic Legacy Season 1? I don't know, but Season 1 is definitely not as good as Season 2. Season 2 is distinctly right. better, in my opinion. I think we might have given it four beakers, or maybe four and a half beakers. It sounds like Season season 2 is going to get five beakers. I'd like five beakers. All right. We're going to give Pandemic Legacy Season 2 five beakers. Yeah. Um, and we're coming in just under the one and a half hour uh, episode time. I do want to tell people, just from my own perspective, right, yeah, uh, uh, that, like, despite any numeric score uh, thing, all of these that I that I listed here are really great. I love all of these different games. They are expertly crafted. Uh, so you know, if you want to go and and try out any of them, then you can talk about them uh, uh, on. The show, whatever. I, I don't know how, what formats you're in. Uh, I think the Discord. The Discord. You could talk about it on the Discord, and everyone would have a great time. Yeah. You could you could get together a tabletop simulator group to play Gloomhaven. You know. On the Discord. That actually would probably be a little bit different, because uh, the upside and downside of having an international group like we do is that we're spread like almost completely evenly around the globe in terms of time zones. Ooh, okay. There's like, there's like East Coast North America, West Coast North America, England, Australia. Um, it's just, it's a little bit spread out. Yes, I, I... Yeah, that is a bit much, but, you know, maybe... Maybe a small group, because uh, most of these games are only up to, like, four players, so. Yeah. Yeah. All right, friends. Uh, we'll catch you this when we catch you. Yeah, this is fun. It we'll... was Christmas today. It was Christmas today. Uh, it'll be Boxing Day when you hear this, I think. Uh, yeah, it's going to come out tomorrow morning at, like, 5. So, yeah, Boxing Day. All right, see you, folks.